morning in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And um, I'm just um, hitting myself down, down there and realising that a year ago I stood here and I was talking about um, just a closer walk with thee. And I just can't believe a year has gone so fast. I can't believe the last two weeks has gone so fast. But there we go. Um, it is a privilege to open up the word of the Lord this morning. And um, before I do that, I'll just take the opportunity to wish, wish all of you, my brothers and sisters, a, a blessed new year in the Lord. And um, we are in grave and perilous times. And uh, we need to encourage one another and we need to draw closer to the Lord. And we need to pay attention to his word more than ever. And uh, I don't want to speak on a specific theme today or a specific message but I want to speak about the Bible itself, the very Word of God, and um, you know, ask a few questions just as an introduction before we get into the, the actual body of, the, of what I have to say. So some questions I put here. Is reading and study of the Bible a high priority in your life? Is the Bible your first point of reference in spiritual and moral matters before you consult other sources? These are questions for myself also, and um, they're all pertinent questions. Do you study, study it habitually or just occasionally? And, um, you know, as the brother Joel said this morning, none of us are perfect yet, and we have moments where we lapse, we get periods where we get uh, something happens, perhaps something goes wrong, we get waylaid, and the good habits that we've set up get thrown into disarray. And what we've got to do is we've got to pick ourselves up and get back on the path and keep going. And I've had to do that numerous times. And I'm sure all of us here would say the same thing. So it's something we have to, um, to work on. You know, if, was, if as we say that we believe that this is the inspired word of God, the infallible word of God, you know, should it not have a higher place in our lives? And, you know, there are many things that are interesting to read. I like to read interesting and informative articles. But this must take priority. This must come first in our daily lives. You know, if we're really living in perilous times, just as I said at the outset, and we believe that the approach of the Great Tribulation may not be far away, and there are many, many signs in the world to show that we're, we're on that slope now to that time, you know, shouldn't we take a keen into some prophecy and what the word has to say about those times that are coming. And um, another question, do you actually believe this morning in the spiritual forces of darkness and that they have an interest in hindering you from reading this book and from dwelling and from feeding on what the Lord has to say? And there's some things just to consider. And I'll bring that up again when I close about the hindrance of the, uh, you know, the forces of darkness against his word. So just as an introduction, I, I watched, um, people probably here are familiar with Jordan Peterson, and he was talking to Joe Rogan about the Bible. And he, that is Jordan, he's a very clever man, and presents things very convincingly, and, and a very studious man, I would say. And, uh, you know, people have different, different opinions on whether he, he's a Christian or not. That's not really relevant to what I'm talking about this morning, I'll leave that to each person to make their own mind up about, but he was talking about a visit that he made to the school 
or at a Bible museum in Washington, and he described it as very cool. And he spoke shortly then for a short period on the chronology of the Bible. And he said that the Bible was a library of books, which I believe is correct, of 66 books there. And he also said these words, it isn't that the Bible is true, it's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth. Now when I heard that, to me personally, he was trying to explain the Bible as a decoding tool for language, communication, and understanding, but in human academic terms. And I don't believe you can do that with the Word of God. It's above and beyond that. It's above and beyond man. It's the Word of God. And we have to treat it as so. Now here are some facts and just things to consider before I go to the passage of Scripture which I want to speak on today. The origin and the construction of the Bible. So no man, you may be well aware of these, but it's worth reflecting on these from time to time. There's no man or group of men planned the Bible. That it's um, written in different countries by different writers over a period of 1,600 years. And God himself oversaw its production. And in fact, Pastor Vernon, when we were praying in the, the prayer room this morning before the meeting, he quoted the scripture, which I have to support that, which is 2 Peter 121. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God, but as holy men of God spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So behind all these different men, different places, different times, the Spirit of God was very much at work. There's a unity in the Bible. And as Jordan Peterson correctly observes, it is a library of 66 books written by about 40 authors in three different languages. And it covers many different topics and it's written under different circumstances. Yet there is a flow from Genesis through to Revelation which clearly has the signature of the fingerprints of God on it. We could talk about the circulation of the Bible. And anybody who remember their, even their basic history in, in high school, basic European history, would have known that the first books printed were in AD 1450 on the Gutenberg Press. And that was the Bible. That was the first book put into print. Now, even the atheists would acknowledge that it is the most printed book in history. And I don't know how to calculate these figures. It could be even greater, but with an estimated circulation of about 6 million copies, sorry, 6 billion B copies produced. There's a persistence with the Bible. The Bible was commenced over 3,000 years ago, completed approximately 2,000 years ago, and it's not declined in popularity. It still remains a, a we want to use the term bestseller, which um, may not be the terminology we like to use with the Word of God, but it's out there, and uh, you'll find many more Bibles than you will the uh, the latest paperback. Translations. It's translated into more languages and dialects than any other book. And it exists in probably over 2,000 languages and dialects. And they're working all the time to get all of the dialects and all of the languages covered. And there's societies that actually, that's their ministry, to translate the Bible into the remaining languages so that everyone can hear. It's got an inexhaustible meaning. And uh, though anyone can understand its main message, that of redemption, the most brilliant minds cannot fully understand its deepest thoughts. Now, I remember Pastor Gary a couple of years back, he said this quote, which actually comes from Augustine, the Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, 
yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. And I think he might have exchanged the word elephant for theologian, but we, we get the, 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 the meaning there. The Bible is a source of inspiration for, for the arts. So many of the great works and movements have been motivated by the Bible, by the Word of God. And you can look at literature, you can look at great works like Milton's Paradise Lost, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which I've watched a few times over the last couple of years, and I encourage any, everybody here, young and old, to watch Pilgrim's Progress to get it, or to read the book. It's um, quite an amazing piece of work. It really, really paints the, the uh, great picture of the Christian walk in this world. The painting, The Last Supper by Da Vinci, wonderful works of art. The glorious Handel's Messiah, musical composition. Great works of architecture like St. Paul's Cathedral, St. Peter's Cathedral. Great movements in history, the Reformation, the Missions Movement, uh, the, the Revolution in Education, Social Reform, Western Parliamentary Democracy. And I might even surprise some people here to, to know that the Labour Movement which has gone a very different direction these days, has Christian roots. It's claimed to be God's word. More than 2,000 times in the Old Testament, the words, thus saith the Lord, are used. Now, you can't find any other book that matches that or has such a claim. And I put here, to anyone who reads the Bible with an open mind and heart, I chose the word should. You should be persuaded that the Bible is God's word to man. Yet God has not overridden our personal freedom and our personal choice. We have to, to read it and make that determination ourselves. Prophecies, we've mentioned prophecies. There's a huge prophetic content in the Bible. Again, I'll go back to a few years back, Pastor Werner sitting in front of me. He gave an example to illustrate how amazing Bible prophecy is. And a couple of the, the ground rules for Bible prophecy. Prophecy must be outside of human possibility. There must be enough time between the prediction and the fulfillment. And there must be enough detail in that prophecy to exclude coincidence. Now, people are attracted to the works of the likes of Nostradamus or fortune tellers or, or uh, horoscopes or all those things, only ungodly sources that are vague and that are no match for real and true prophecy. And uh, I think the illustration that was used at the time to talk about how there's such a support for the truth of the prophecy of the Bible. If you flipped a coin and you go for heads or tails, there's a one in two probability that you'll get a head or a tail. If you look at the weather and you said that tomorrow's weather, it could be warm and windy, not warm, not windy, warm and not windy, or not warm and windy. So out of those two factors, you get four combinations. If there's three, it goes to eight. Now, there's an estimated, and I, I studied this before I, I put this to paper, there's somewhere in the range of 300 to 400 prophecies that have been fulfilled concerning Jesus. And if you apply that same bit of mathematics there, the probability of those being fulfilled by chance is 1 over 2 to the power of 330, which is 4.5719 by 10 to the power of 100. Now, you cannot write that number on a piece of paper. It would be a very, very wide piece of paper. And the mathematicians will tell you that's beyond chance. That's actually into the realms of impossibility that that could happen by chance. And I think there was another illustration given, I don't know whether it was by John Shippen or Werner, but 
The illustration was that if you covered the whole surface of the globe with one meter high of silver coins, and you put one gold coin, buried it in that one meter of silver coins, if you took a helicopter with a pilot, blindfolded the pilot, asked him to fly and to land somewhere, to put his hand in and to retrieve that gold coin, that gives you an illustration of the, the unlikelihood of those things happening by chance. So that's just a little bit of a picture for you there, just to, to dwell on, but it's, it's beyond human reasoning. It's, it is truly the work of God. Survival and persecution. The history shows that mighty kings, emperors, priests have tried to destroy or to control the Bible. They are all dead, but Bible verses live on. Wycliffe and Tyndale, they were persecuted because they, because they translated the Bible. And other men and women have died rather than deny the Bible and the Christ it presents. It's been attacked by the higher critics. There are even those within the church who want to exclude Genesis because they want to accommodate the theory of evolution or they want to fashion a woke gospel. Now, I watched a video clip, and uh, it was of a Bible-believing Christian protesting outside a Baptist church somewhere in the USA. And this Baptist, Baptist church had gone woke. It had a rainbow flag and messages on diversity displayed on the banner over the entry. And the man engaged the pastor and the elder, and he was very, very respectful. And he was accused of being Pauline. You know, and I looked at that, and you know, it is interesting that there are churches that try to exclude the, the works of Paul, to say they're not applicable. And we know we're talking, we're dealing with the full counsel of God, right from Revelation through to, so right from Genesis through to Revelation, that we can't exclude any of the books. It's a canon complete of Scripture. So the people that are actually trying to exclude particular parts of the Bible, whether it be Genesis or elsewhere, you know, in an effort to support their position. And it's wrong. That's obviously not, not the right thing to be doing. The pastor and the elder of this church, they were very quick to quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son. And the whole emphasis was on love, which is very, very true. But um, the principle is that you welcome everyone into the church, and especially sinners, but they must hear the gospel preached and they must have the opportunity to repent and to turn from their sin. And any, any other attempt to, to hide that or to soft coat it, you know, it's wrong. So, um, you know, that, 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 that was an attack from within, I guess, on the Word of God. And the central character of the Bible. So the main revealed character of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He's the greatest wonder of the Bible. He's present at the creation. He's present, as we spoke this morning, at the table of the Lord, at the um, crucifixion, at the resurrection, He's present in the millennial reign and he's present at the judgment. The whole Bible points to Jesus. And as no other religion has a savior like Jesus. You know, you could talk further about the historical content of the Bible, how archaeology has frequently disproved the critics. And I think I've mentioned before there's plenty of examples of that, that they denied the existence of King David until they found inscriptions that proved David existed. They denied the existence of the Hittites and said that it was a fallacy until they found arrowheads with uh, the Hittite uh, writings inscribed on them. And as you can go through, archaeology is constantly 
proving that Scripture and the Word of God is true. And um, you, know, you only have to look at the first the introduction to Luke chapter 1, and you'll see there where Luke, he's talking to Theophilus, and he, he tells exactly how they were so careful to record accurately the historical content and the detail. And um, you know, I think we can fully trust the historical content and the spiritual content, the archaeological, all of the poetic content, whatever aspect you want to pick from it, is all well founded and well thought through. Now, it's a good thing to be able to give an account of some of what I've mentioned previously there to give a defense of the Bible and the Christian faith. It's a common for atheists to attack the Bible as fairy tales, or for Muslims to say that it's been altered. Yet there's a lot more evidence to support the Bible and its accurate preservation than you might actually think. And it's well worth actually looking into that and researching it if you're involved in any sort of witnessing or debating or any of that type of thing at all to have um, a good foundation and have good knowledge of that. And it's very well supported. You know, I wrote here concerning the accurate preservation of the Bible. There's so many early Bible manuscripts, something in the order of 6,000, that a conspiracy to alter the text, as some people say, you know, the Muslims will say that the texts have been altered, that the scriptures are, are polluted. You know, to, to, to conspire to alter that number of texts would be impossible. And I always point out when I'm witnessing that the Bible has stood up and does stand up to the closest scrutiny. So that was just by way of introduction. And the scripture I wanted to talk about today is a very well-known scripture concerning the power of the word of God. That's Hebrews chapter 4, 11 to 13, which we all know very well. Reading there, it says, verse 11, chapter 4, let us therefore, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him whom we have to do. <clears throat> Most scholars believe that that's the words of Paul, but it's not absolutely 100% certain. It is certain it's written to Jewish believers, but again, the location where they were is not a certainty. And if we go back and we read the previous chapter, verses of chapter 3, verse 8 to 19, it gives the context for those verses we've just read. So just bear with me while we read through those because it's important. Verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. That's my perseverance there, being steadfast to the end. 
While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved for forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So what do we see in this particular passage? Hard hearts, tempting of Jesus, not knowing his ways, evil hearts of unbelief, departing from the living God, the deceitfulness of sin, provoking God's wrath, and not entering through unbelief. Now the Israelites had Moses, they had a pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day, and many, many other miracles. Now in our time we have the gospel, we have the power of God unto salvation, we have the full counsel of God right from Genesis through to Revelation. And we also have the teacher of the Holy Spirit. So even with signs and wonders, we too can fall in the desert of this present world because of a lack of faith and because of unbelief. And that's the encouragement this morning for myself and for us to have faith and to have belief and to, to really put ourselves into this word, to believe what it says. Believe it before you read, believe the six, six o'clock news or the Daily Herald or whatever else you, you may come across, this is fact, this is truth, this is what we, we rest on. Hebrews 4 verse 2 it says, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So we have a choice, we have to believe, and we have to exercise faith when we read this word. Believe it is the word of God, believe it is truth. Now just jumping back to our main scripture, Hebrews 4, 11, 13. Verse 11 summarizes and points back to the failure of the Israelites. And we must labor and aspire for God's rest. Otherwise, we too will fall or fail. And we need diligence to enter into God's rest. God is rewarded, as Scripture says, of those who seek him diligently. And where do we find God? In prayer and in his word. And the Israelites... As much of the Old Testament, it's there as a warning for us, the Bible says. Uh, we know that Satan blinds the mind of the unbeliever. We know that he has dominion in this world for a time. But how many of the negative traits mentioned there are actually part of our walk? And um, how many are present in me or in you? And again, we have to be honest this morning and I admire my brother Joel for his honesty here this morning. That all of those things, hardness of heart, deceitfulness, you know, tendency to sin, can all be present in the walk of the believer. And we have to deal with it. We have to, to come back to the Lord. We have to acknowledge we have to whatever it is, put right things with people, or just get up and keep going and ask the Lord to forgive us and press on. So we're reminded of God's word. The same word that convicts the Israelites also convicts me and you today that we have to uh, watch, watch our hearts. Verse 12, if you look at the adjectives used there, living, sharp, powerful, and discerning. Now you've heard it said that we live in a time of spiritual famine because of a lack of a knowledge of God's word. 
His word is to be desired as spiritual food for the inner man. And we know we are washed and cleansed by the word of God. We know that Jesus and his word are inseparable. In John 1.1 we read, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word illuminated by the spirit is opened and real. And um, I like this representation, which you've heard, that just talks about the unity of the Godhead, where Jesus, or brackets the word is, there also is the Father and the Holy Spirit. Where the Father is, there also is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, there also is Jesus and the Father. So there's perfect harmony, perfect unity, and perfect agreement. And we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, again, well-known scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So what can we say from that? That God's word is the final, full, complete, and perfect revelation of himself and his will for man. There's no new doctrines, but by the Holy Spirit, the word can be illuminated for an occasion, a particular requirement. I don't think we could say this of the Quran, the Book of Moroni, the Buddhist writings, the Catechism, whatever. They're all works of man, not, not a work of God. We read in Revelations 22, verse 19. And if any man should take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things that are written in this book. So corrupting God's word or creating additional books, whatever it may be, is a serious matter. And I believe this warning applies to all of Holy Scripture and not just Revelation. The term living or quick, you know, in modern English we have a different understanding of the word quick. It's usually associated with speed or rapid movement. But there is an old expression, there is only the quick and the dead. And the King James' words there, you know, quickened or alive is what, we're, what, we're, what the meaning is. So our words are going to pass away, but the word of God lives on and endures. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now our words often bring death and negative consequences. Our views in politics, history, personalities, all pass away. Daniel Andrews in a few years' time will not be mentioned anymore. Neither will Anthony Albanese. But this word, <laughs> yeah. amen, this word of God will still be alive and will still be spoken of. Amen. It endures forever. It's powerful. It's powerful to accomplish its intended purpose. In Isaiah 55 verse 11, it says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing where through I sent it. So it's powerful. It enables salvation. 1 Peter 1 verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. 
It works in those who believe. And it's scriptures to support all these. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, and effectually work it also in you that believe. And that ties in again with the previous scripture, the importance of believing and having faith in what God says. It makes the man of God complete. I'm back to 2 Timothy again, chapter 3, verse 17. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You know, a study of Luke 24 will show you that Jesus himself uses the word to overcome Satan. Uh, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me and you, I believe. It's sharper. So it's associated with powerful objects and weapons. In Ephesians 6, 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the word, sorry, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's sharp to divide the hidden things, the soul, the spirit, the joints, the marrow. It's never blunt. And it will cut you if you mishandle it. And it always has an effect. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 16, we read, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and make it manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other the savour of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things. So the word of God does have an effect. People are either going to see life in you or they're going to, they're going to go to a place of death. Jesus himself said that we did not come, he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Let me read that in Matthew 10, 34. In Proverbs 5, we read, verse 1 to 5, My son, attend unto my wisdom, Abow thine ear to my understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and that thy lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. And I wrote here, there's many seductive things in this world, many ideas, many philosophies, and they're not all entirely bad. But while some may be sharp, they're not sharper like what God has to say in his word in that uh, verse from, from Hebrews. So it's sharp versus sharper. Piercing. The true word of God can pierce the hardest of hearts. I'm sure many of us this morning can give testimonies of where that's actually happened. Human wisdom, you know, good diction, good presentation, don't always uh, do it. But the Word of God is a special power attached to it. And the Word of God, even from the simplest of an individual, the least educated, can have a powerful effect. It can be taken and preached anywhere. Now, false gospels, and there are many false gospels, they are powerless to bring hope. And neither can it be taken to a place of pain or suffering. And I mentioned a Friday night we were praying for the persecuted church and I mentioned what was happening in Nigeria. If anybody's watching the news, there are many, many Christians that are being slaughtered there by the Fulani Islamists. Can you imagine bringing a gospel there on prosperity, 
or your best life now to such a place? Or to the Uyghurs in a slave labor camp in China? Only the true gospel, only the gospel of salvation, repentance, being born again, is valid for such situations and occasions. False gospels don't work. Discerning. God's word separates the precious from the corrupt, the wheat from the chaff, and it reveals and exposes thoughts and imaginations. And jumping forward to verse 13 of the passage, there are no secrets to God. It says there, all things are naked before him. And this is a reason for genuine believers to rejoice, but for hypocrites to tremble. And, um, you know, all of us, how many times have you done something you were ashamed of and thought, well, God didn't really notice or you understand, God sees everything. He sees our secret thoughts. He sees our heart, even when we can't see it, our motivations. And uh, all those things are naked before him. Proverbs 15, verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And um, that's why hypocrisy or self-deception or being deceived is such a insidious, such a dangerous thing, you know, that we think we're okay, but God, God sees the reality. God watches over his word. In Jeremiah 1, verse 12, we read, Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. And I wrote here, you know, not to worry about those who think that they can suppress or eradicate God's word because they're fighting a losing battle. They're not going to win against God. You know, I may have mentioned before, a long time ago, but France was the first European country to remove God from its constitution. And Voltaire, who was a famous French atheist from that period, he wrote that within a hundred years, there would be no Bibles left in France. But he died on his bed and he was demented. And he cried out that thou hast conquered, O Nazarene, or thou Nazarene. They've tried to do the same thing in, and failed in communist China. And there's other countries in the world, I'm sure North Korea is the same. I'm sure some of the um, Middle Eastern Arab countries that if you're caught with a Bible, you'll probably pay dearly for it. And we think of those accounts of people who memorized pages from the Bible or memorized whole books from the Bible because they couldn't hold on to a hard copy or a written copy of God's word because it was illegal. So just a quick reflection, just to consider what we've covered. That at the creation in Genesis, God is clearly seen as the writer. If you read the first chapter of Genesis, count the number of times God is mentioned. It's 32 in my King James Bible. So God records the first chapter. He's the writer of certainly that first chapter of Genesis. He was present. No man was. Then we have preservation of that account orally from generation to generation. Around about 1400 BC, the Ten Commandments are also written by the finger of God. But Moses also wrote the first five books or scrolls, the Pentateuch. So that initiates the written word of God by man, and by man inspired by God. 500 BC, the Hebrew Old Testament, 39 books, they were completed. In 200 BC, the Greek Septuagint, including the Apocrypha, that was written. 
In 100 AD, the Greek New Testament was written. In 315 AD, Athanasius identified the 27 books of the New Testament, which we consider as the canon. In 382 AD, the Latin Vulgate was produced. And by 500 AD, the scriptures are recorded in 500 languages. And the next time you're talking to a Muslim who's telling you that the Bible is corrupt, their book wasn't even written for hundreds of years after Muhammad. And uh, if you've read the Quran, as I have quite a while back, there's, there's so much contradiction and so much um, illogical and crazy things in there. It just doesn't, I don't know how they can argue for it. 600 AD, the Dark Ages, only the Latin Bible was permitted. It was only permitted for a select group. They tried to, to limit, particularly the Catholic Church, the Bible from the hands of the common believer. You know, I've probably mentioned before, at that time, the monks in the monasteries of Scotland and Ireland, the outer western, western side of Europe, preserved the scriptures in those times. And um, if anybody's in Dublin, they want to go into the uh, Trinity College, they can actually see the Book of Kells, which is from that time. And it's an ornate, handwritten um, Bible. And it's quite spectacular to look at. But these were done by men who wanted to, who cherished and wanted to preserve God's word. In 995 AD, the early Anglo-Saxon New Testament was produced. Again, we're talking about written copies, written by what a tedious job would be to write something of that size and to do it correctly and to have no errors. 1384, Wycliffe's handwritten Bible for the ordinary man was produced. And that was mentioned already in 1450 AD, Guttenberg's first printed Bible was produced. Then we had Tyndale and Cloverdale's first printed English New Testament. 1517, with Luther and the Reformation. And then following off in that period with more written works, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, Cranmer's Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, the King James Bible, the 1885 Revised King James Bible, the NAB, NASB, New King James Bible, NIV, and the list goes on. That's also worth commenting that we also have current translations of the Bible, which I believe the Christians should steer clear of. There are corrupted versions of the Bible. There's the JW New World Bible. If you read that, you'll find there are subtle, deliberate um, changes made in that Bible. There's the Message Bible. There's many false translations. You know, some people here may have, just, may have done a bit of study on Westcott and Hort, and, uh, you know, there's some question marks over perhaps some of the work they've produced, but I'll leave that to the individual to study themselves. But I would encourage people, you know, and uh, I say this, I like the KJV, but I'm by no means a KJV-only person, but you should satisfy yourself that you have an accurate translation, as accurate as possible, translation of the Bible. I think we owe ourselves to do that and uh, to research and to, to be satisfied that what you have is, is as close to the original as possible and there's not sections deleted or, or missing passages, which there is in some of the translations. And just some conclusions and lessons from all of this. We should have a reverence for God's word. It is the power of God unto salvation. Don't sell your birthright as Esau did for the stew of worldly ideas and men's philosophies. So don't be attracted or seduced by 
modern technology, modern science, whatever, away from God's word. This is truth. I mean, we're living in a generation now where men can't distinguish between the sexes and men can have children, apparently, and all sorts of crazy things. You know, the, the world of science is um, in a very, very dangerous place at the moment, I believe. But this world hasn't changed. So be, be careful what we, what we pay attention to. Heed its warnings. Neglect them at your peril. Pray that God makes it effective. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Watch how we react to it. Some are dull and react with indifference. Again, we have a choice. It's a matter of exercising faith and belief. And there are many who will have heard the word of God yet still reject it. But they have to give an account one day. Some, although cut to the heart, remain unchanged. And we see that in Acts 7 verse 54 where it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on them with their teeth. So your heart may be touched by the word of God, but you can rile up in anger if you don't uh, receive it correctly and lash out. Some were cut to the heart and were changed. In Acts 2 verse 37 it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the biblical reaction to hearing the truth, to having your heart touched, to having the Spirit of God touch you and convict you. What should I do? Repent, turn to the Lord, turn to the living God. Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And uh, just finish on one scripture, which um, Isaac mentioned on Friday night in his prayer. Psalm 138, verse 2. I will worship toward the holy, thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. I think that says it all, that the word of God is to be magnified and to be held in high regard. I'll finish with an illustration, and I found this from D.L. Moody. And what he wrote is interesting. What he says here is, No book in the world has been so misjudged as the Bible. Men judge it without reading it, or perhaps they read a bit here and a bit there, and then close it saying, it is so dark and mysterious. You take a book nowadays and read it. Someone asks you, what did you think about it? Well, you say, I've only read it through once and not very carefully, and I should not like to give an opinion. Yet people take up God's book, read a few pages, and condemn the whole of it. Of all the skeptics and infidels I've ever met speaking against the Bible, I've never met one who read it through. There may be such men, but I've never, heard, I've never met them. It is simply an excuse. There is no man living who will stand up before God and say that that kept him out of the kingdom. It is the devil's work. And this is to go back to what I said at the start. It is the devil's work trying to make us believe it is not true and that it is dark and mysterious. The only way to overcome the great enemy of souls is by the written word of God. He knows that and so tries to make men disbelieve it. As soon as a man is a true believer in the word of God, he is a conqueror over Satan. Young man, the Bible is true. 
What are these infidels to give you in its place? What has made England the open Bible? Every nation, of course, this is written a long time before present-day England, which is a very different place. What has made England but the open Bible? Every nation that exalted the word of God is exalted, and every nation that casted it down is cast down. Oh, let us cling close to the Bible. Of course, we shall not understand it all at once, but men are not to condemn, on it, that, that, condemn it on that account. Suppose, suppose I should send my little boy, five years old, to school tomorrow morning, and when he came home in the afternoon, say to him, Willie, can you read or can you write? Can you spell? Do you understand all about algebra, geometry, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek? Why, Papa, the little fellow would say, how funny you talk. I have been all day trying to learn the ABC. Well, I suppose I should reply, if you've not finished your education, you need not go anymore. What would you say? Why would you say I'd gone mad? Why you would say I'd gone mad? There would be just as much reason in that as in the way that people talk about the Bible. My friends, the men who have studied the Bible for 50 years, the wise men and the scholars, the great theologians, have never got down to the depths of it yet. There are truths there that the Church of God has been searching out for the last 1,800 years, but no man has fathomed the depths of that ever-living stream. And that's the conclusion of what D.L. Moody says. May the Lord bless all of us this morning, and may he put on our hearts to give prayer and the word central place this year, each day. And um, this is truth. This is our food. This is everything for the believer. And, um, you know, maybe all just commission. You know, we don't have to make open verbal resolutions for the new year, but uh, just commit to yourself and um, to daily study of the word. If you miss some days because things go wrong or because you fall or whatever, just get up again and keep going. And that's my encouragement to one and all this morning. And may the Lord bless you, and uh, may you have good fellowship over tea and coffee next door. Amen.